And now, coming to you live from the Gershman Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the first episode of the next 200 episodes of the Coot Street Podcast with Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf. Without the big long bit, because I got that the wrong way round. Ah, uh, well. Uh, oh, that's all right. Let it go. Yeah, I've let it go. At least the next two, maybe for the next 200 episodes, I won't say the whole big long podcast thing. Um, we should we should ask our listeners for suggestions for how to improve the mechanisms are surrounding the podcast because we're, we're starting in on the second 200 now and i did something i don't often do i listened to to number 200 which we recorded with joe walton and robert silverberg and kim stanley robinson all of whom sounded utterly brilliant to me it was a well-recorded podcast. i i found myself listening to the whole thing wow i've not done that yet i i thought that they were fascinating i thought that uh, that we were Suitably restrained when it was called for, which was most of the time. Well, but, um, well, I would agree. I mean, the, one of the points of that podcast, other than to celebrate the fact that we record Crude Street at all, obviously mm-hmm. was to talk to those three people and to give them their space to, to converse. And they're great, interesting people. They've all, uh, two of them have been guests on the podcast before, and I'm sure all of them will be guests again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great fun. Uh, and, you know, look, I I did listen to part of the podcast just because I wanted to check the audio quality. And I know we've thanked the technical team at LunCon 3 before, but I'd like to thank them again. And I'd also like to make them a public offer, Gary. If they want a mm-hmm. job, the Cood Street podcast needs a producer, <laughs> plainly. Well, uh, probably does. It probably needs... I mean, I'm, I'm, we're totally dependent on you. Our, our listeners should know... Uh, that I am, I'm completely not responsible for any audio screw-ups that happen during the podcast because I don't <laughs> even know how to do that. So no, that's great. Thanks. I don't feel sold down the river at all. <laughs> I think once, I think once or twice uh, in the history of the podcast, we've used my backup recording, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is done without the benefit of a microphone because I can't even get my microphone to talk to my computer anymore. Um, but by and large, what you're saying is correct. We need somebody to organize us. Uh, but I think not to organize us too much. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I have heard from uh, from from listeners, uh, and I may be misinterpreting this. I may be hearing it the way I want to hear it. That this organization is part of our charm. Well, yes, but I think you want to contain that mis- that misorganization to the freeform conversation that we enjoy. Rather than to a sort of cacophonic approach to the organization of the podcast or a discordant recording of the same. And we've had some pretty shocking uh, recordings. And we've had some recordings which, unfortunately, a a few weeks ago even, we weren't able to use simply because of technical issues. Yes. Um, Or or recordings that we've lost because of technical issues. So, so yes, we, we certainly need professional help. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, let me put that another way. No, no, I think you put it just exactly the right way. I wouldn't change that that a bit. The Coot Street Podcast would need professional help. Yes, exactly. Uh, so how's your science fictional week been, my friend? But, um, the science fiction week, I was thinking uh, one of the things that, uh, that our friends at Galactic Suburbia have done on their podcast, uh, which is which is something I never have wanted to do because I don't do enough of it, but, uh, but, but they will go through a list of culture consumed that week. 
Yep. They will go through the Doctor Who episodes they've watched, the movies they've seen, the books they've read, the online stories they've read, and so forth and so on. And I always feel very impressed when they do that because they seem so much more active and engaged than I am. <laughs> but I have noticed something, uh, and this is probably not relevant to, um, to many of our listeners, that three of the most interesting science fiction movies I've seen in the last, I'm going to say, month to month and a half, are films which, at least in the United States, are barely getting released at all. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things that many of us have here, and I'm sure you have it uh, in Australia, are, are pay-per-view television yeah. Um, yeah. movies, which means that you can, you know, for, for a fee, watch a movie either before or simultaneously to its release in theaters, which I will do, and I'll pay my $6.99 or my $9.99 and think I'm... I'm watching this movie before it gets released in a theater, and then it never gets released in a theater. <laughs> at, least, at least not anywhere outside of New York or Los Angeles. The three movies I've seen, the, the one I saw tonight, um, was The Zero Theorem. Okay, yeah, I've heard of it. The Zero Theorem is what Terry Gilliam believes to be the third in his trilogy of science fiction films that began with Brazil and continued with The Twelve Monkeys. Okay. Uh, they're unrelated except thematically. Um, and this was a very Terry Gilliam movie. It was a it was a very made movie. It had virtually no CGI in it at all. They there, there were elaborate costumes, very witty exteriors, uh, a fairly gnomic script. Excellent performance by Christoph Waltz. Um, and I think it's 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 not as stunning as Brazil, which is one of my favorite science fiction movies. But it's more like Brazil than any other Terry Gilliam movie. And yeah. I don't think this movie is going anywhere. I've not seen any ads for it. I've not heard about it being released. That's one. Yep, Second okay. movie, another one I watched on pay-per-view a couple of weeks ago called The Congress. Um, and this is a film by, and I, I should remember the name of the filmmaker, but I don't at the moment. Um, it's a film starring a very lovely, talented actress named Robin Wright playing yep. herself as oh, an wow. older actress. And half it, it's, it's a film that does not hang together, but the parts of it are so fascinating in their own way uh, that I can't help but recommend people see it. Okay. The first half of the film is about an aging actress who has made bad career choices. And the bad career choices that are alluded to are clearly Robin Wright's own career choices. Um, and she's basically has her contract bought out for life by a studio that wants to digitize her and turn her into a virtual actress. Um, okay. Which she agrees. And then the second half of the film, believe it or not, turns into an animated film adaptation of Stanislaw Lim's The Futurological Congress. Okay, wow. Really? Yes. It, it, it's not exactly <laughs> Okay, coherent. that's weird. <laughs> yeah. It's very weird. There's some lovely animation. There's a really striking animated version of Robin Wright as the aging Robin Wright. Uh, the, 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 the limb stuff, the kind of socialist satire that made up the Futurological Congress is, is, is shoehorned into this movie about an actress becoming virtual. And it doesn't hang together at all, but again, the pieces are so um, compelling that I, I'd like to hear what other people think about it. Mm -hmm. Third film, even earlier than that, which I don't know if it's made it into theaters anywhere, uh, was a film adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Radio Free Album Youth. Yeah, I'd which heard of Radio Free. Yeah, and it was it was reasonably accurate. Uh, and, and one of the things that 
struck me about seeing that it's 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 not a it's not a well budgeted film. It's not really a particularly well acted film, but by and large, it's probably the most loyal to Dick's own texts and his own attitude of any of the Philip K. Dick films, which is certainly not saying a lot when you think of some of the some of the things that have been committed in the, in the name of Philip K. Dick. On the other hand, I came away thinking maybe being too loyal to Philip K. Dick's worldview is not a good idea for a movie anyway. It may not be. I mean, my recollection of the worlds of Philip K. Dick, and I haven't read a, a novel of his in a quarter century, hmm. um, is that it's not always the cheeriest place to be. Well, it's not only... The, the, by the time you get to Radio Free Album, where you're moving into the really bizarre, semi-autobiographical stage of, mm. uh, of Dick's fiction, yep. you're dealing with, with some serious disturbances and not as much control over the plot as he had in his earlier novels. Yep. Uh, my, my, my sense uh, is that still the Philip, the Philip K. Dick movie that most effectively echoes early Philip K. Dick is one which pretended not to be based on a Philip K. Dick novel at all, The Truman Show. Okay, yeah. Uh, which, which begins essentially with the uh, initial situation, uh, very similar to that of Time Out of Joint, which was his first, uh, I think it was his first hardcover book. Yeah, it may, it may have been, yeah. Certainly there's no doubt, and we've said it before here, and many, many other people have said it as well, Dick has become the most iconic, most successful, most relevant science fiction writer of all time, probably. I'm not sure that's true. I, I, I think that um, when you talk about that kind of relevance and you talk about the kind of um, appeal he has through misprisions of his work in movies, yeah. we're seeing very little of that. And there, there are a lot of fascinating, paranoid movies uh, that, that, that can contain the spirit of Philip K. Dick. Sure. Uh, and... Um, I'm, I'm, Stranger Than Fiction is one of them. It's not a Philip K. Dick story, but it's... Sure. Um, it's uh, but, but, but by and large, the, the impact Dick has had in a, in a sort of small literary community, um, the J Jonathan Lethem crowd, the McSweeney's yeah. crowd, the sure. sort of uh, postmodern young Brooklyn writers, I think a lot of people have absorbed that worldview, but not absorbed the pulpishness. And one of the things that Dick really... Um, did well, and it sounds almost ill-tempered to say it, was to write published adventure stories. Yeah, yeah. Very early novels like Solar Lottery worked on this headlong uh, one thing after another uh, event, and he complicated that. He complicated pulp by getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper layers in it. The one, the one novel of his which I would love to see filmed is Ubik, because yeah. I think you could do that. But um, I think that the people I, I, I don't know if anybody's trying to write Philip K. Dick fiction anymore I don't know either I mean oh, you probably get no, you, you undeniably get whisp well not even whispers you can see people influenced by where the the worldview trickles through and some of the underpinnings of it trickle through so I think it's been enormously influential I really do. I think probably the, the, the one of the problems maybe in, in discerning the influence of Philip K. Dick on popular media in the 21st century is that it's so all-pervasive that it's difficult to see around the edges of it. Um, that could very well be. It, 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 it could be that he has uh, sort of manufactured a worldview which has been adopted not only by other science fiction writers, by mainstream writers, to some extent by filmmakers, 
which is much more the center, it's much more the default position of science fiction and fantasy, and if you want, postmodern literature, than the Heinlein uh, view sure. was. The Heinlein, the Heinlein view has gone away. It's gone away, and, uh, and you could make a good argument that the Heinlein view went away well before Heinlein stopped writing. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, to be, not to sort of get overly reductio ad absurdum about it, probably by the mid-70s, by the time the 60s were dead, which was in the early to mid-70s, um, his worldview was waning. Um, and by the time you get to 1980, it's largely uh, secondary. And by the time you hit cyberpunk, they, they really kind of blow it away, I think. And it never really comes back as a primary I worldview. I think that's true. I th well, I think it stays... I think there's still some of it there. Oh, there's sure. some of military science fiction. There's some of it there in um, a kind of... I, it's some of some of it's there in analog, uh, which mm -hmm. I don't read very often. But when I do read it, it turns out to be yeah, pretty much Heinlein. I would say that the Heinlein worldview was being exploded, probably was was under attack by the end of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, and part of this comes to mind because of listening to our 200 podcasts and listening to um, uh, to Joe uh, Walton in particular talking about uh, rereading *The Stars My Destination*. Yep. Um, from 19 56, and this is uh, a complete demolition of the Heinlein hero, of the Heinlein worldview, of the kind of rational. Uh, uh, stylistically, it's, it's it's a demolition job. Uh, thematically, morally, it is. And when you start looking at what was going on in the 50s, and this comes about again from listening, obviously, to Bob, who was who was there as a fledgling writer, and to Joe, who's reread all this stuff, and to Stan, who was coming in a few years later, but certainly read the history of the field, that yep. Sturgeon was challenging the competent man as a central character uh, by the end of the 40s. Vester yes. was uh, challenging the morally upright, competent engineer as, as, as a hero. Um, Blish was challenging. In other words, the Heinlein hero was under attack by the mid-1950s. Of course he was. I mean, that's the nature of the conversation, isn't it? I mean, we go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about the conversation in science fiction and text talking to one another. And uh, people, understandably, out there in the world get their backs up because they keep hearing about the conversation and whether it's relevant or not. But one of the things the conversation does is it it's, has this thing where, like, Heinlein pushes the competent hero kind of story model throughout mm -hmm. the 40s and 50s and into the 60s. By the time it's been the pre well, it's the preeminent story model for a while, of course mm -hmm. everybody who comes along is going to respond to it in some way or another, particularly back then when everybody was reading all the science fiction in the world, you know. So that right. Ted Sturgeon and his generation were clearly either heavily influ influenced by and following on from or responding to the Heinlein competent man worldview. And it's true that when a, a theme, a story model, settles into science fiction, it becomes part of the the meat and blood of the genre. It becomes part, you know, so the, the, there are always people who are writing comp competent man stories, even if they're not at the forefront of the genre or at the cutting edge of the genre, whatever that may be. So it doesn't go away. But it's no, no. I, I think that's one of the things that, that it's a it's a fallacy about literary history in general, and it's a particular fallacy about the literary history of science fiction, that that it comes in phases. 
that the space opera went away at the end of the 30s. It didn't. The Heinlein hero went away at the end of the 40s. It didn't. Cyberpunk went away at the end of the 80s. It didn't. They all stayed there. They all are strains. They're not necessarily the. They're not necessarily what drives the conversation anymore. That's right. They they have played their part. They've kind of run out of steam a bit, but have found a natural part of of the over, of a part of the genre. And it's just why I mean, yes, I did the new space opera with Gardner um, five or six years ago, but mm-hmm. even at the time, you know, you're, you're aware that space opera never went away. You know, the, the, and nor was it ever going to go away. It just evolved and changed, and extra things happened, and uh, then it came to greater prominence for a while. It fell back. I think it's about to come to greater greater prominence again over the next couple of years, um, largely because of the influence of media. I mean, with the various space opera TV shows that are going to be made, you know, with the, mm. with, with the with the Expanse, with Gateway, with the Old Man's War Universe, those sort of things, they will bring space opera to a, a greater degree of prominence for a while. And then it'll fall back again, and so on and so forth. But the conversation, it'll kind of pick and choose as it tr- peaks and troughs. You know, it'll sort of like, oh, for a little while, the, the, the new space opera, such as it was, was part of the conversation. Now that's uh, backdropped or, or backgrounded again whilst we talk about other things. And overwhelmingly now, you know, the preeminent thing being discussed is inclusiveness and broadening of of viewpoints and worldviews in, in science fiction and fantasy, which is hugely important and wonderful and incredibly valuable and is mm-hmm. actually quite interestingly advanced by the news from Clark's World this week, which I don't know if you saw, that they will I be adding know. one original Chinese story to every issue. Ah. They have come to an agreement with a uh, Chinese media company, I think it is, and they're, they're going to do a Kickstarter and... What will happen is that they will be sent a whole bunch of Chinese stories to, and they'll choose a top one every week or every month, sorry. And so, starting at a certain point in the future, I don't know exactly when. I think there's, I know there's a story in this issue. I don't know if that's the first of them, but there will be a freshly translated Chinese story in every issue. Well, that's a great thing, and it's also part of the evolution of the field and and that kind of thing. So, it's a great thing if people read these stories. I mean, one of the things that's come up. Well, uh, by read them, I, I mean read them and respond to them in a way that um, uh, that hasn't happened really much in the past. I mean, it's very difficult uh, to, to name a non-English language work of science fiction, which has driven the conversation in a significant way. That is true. Uh, and but People have tried for years. Damon Knight, back in the 60s, was doing translations of French science fiction. Uh, Jim and Kathy Morrow did the Science Fiction European Hall of Fame, uh, the Organization of the Science Fiction Fantasy Translation Awards, which I'm involved with, has been giving awards out. We've given occasional, um, we gave a Crawford Award to Karen Tidbeck, for example, from Sweden. But by and large, uh, all these are efforts to bring non-English language science fiction to the attention of readers. But to what extent are readers... To what extent are they driving the conversation in the way we would hope that they would? To what extent are they joining the conversation okay. in the way that we would? Um, I will respond to this at a slightly tangential angle because it's actually something that I've been thinking about a great deal lately, believe it or not, and amongst everything else. And that is what it takes to, physic- to, to influence the field in the 21st century, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, my thoughts started during a panel I did at Worldcon about bookmark or um, enormous influential anthologies being published. 
And I, I had this thought that really I don't think any anthology can substantially affect the way the conversation goes anymore, not a single anthology. It's why, for all its relative strengths, the hieroglyph anthology by itself as a, as a sole action won't succeed in changing the dialogue of science fiction the way they would like it to. Uh, you need no. something broader than that. Now, all of the well-intentioned and quite often very high-quality examples that you've given were all so single shots in the dark. They were all an anthology and nothing more. Mm. A story here or there and nothing more. Now, the encouraging thing is, I think we're seeing more and more of those single shots, so that's a positive thing. You know, uh, what was it? Uh, Small Beer Press did a Mexican SF anthology a couple of years back. Uh, mm -hmm. There are more translation anthologies popping up. There, there was a, been a couple of African anthologies, and so on. But what Clark's World doing is they're saying, well, every month we're going to put it uh, in front of you as part of our normal fare. And here it is. Month after month, there'll be 12 stories a year, and it will build up, and you will hear about it again and again. And I'm, I would be surprised, though I don't know this, that Clark's World won't make sure you know about it month after month after month. And if that's successful, then it wouldn't shock me to see places like Lightspeed and Tor.com follow that, that lead. Mm -hmm. And then you would begin to see translated work appearing much more commonly and in fact, probably I would guess the idea of translated work would disappear and it would just simply be a range of writers that we'd not heard of before coming to prominence. So I think it's, it, it may be the most promising thing we've seen yet in terms of bringing non-English speaking, pardon me, science fiction to the world. Now I realize it's just Chinese science fiction, no, that's enormous, but it's the uh -huh. first big step, I think. It has the potential to be a game changer, whether it is or not, only time will tell. But I think it's a, a huge thing. No, I think it is a huge thing, and I think it's much to be applauded. And I think, for that matter, Ken Liu has much to be applauded for the number yes. of translations he's done over the last several years. And I assume he'll be doing some of these as well. Because that does bring uh, non-English language fiction into the, into the general conversation. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be um, you know, a Chinese or an Indonesian or a Malaysian or a Thai neuromancer, which will cause everybody to rethink things. Um, but but it, it opens the possibility for that. It opens the possibility that people are now going to read um, other language sci science fiction. Uh, 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 there's still the problem with the, the cost of doing this. The, 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 the absolutely, translation. absolutely. But a 20-year-old reader of science fiction in 2015 or 14, you know, can stumble across Heiko Soro's The Future is Japanese or their new one, Fantastic Japan. They, they can stumble across the work of Benjamin and Skrudenkrau. They can uh, find you know, Afro 2000 or whatever it was called. I forget the, the exact date in, in the title. Um, they can find you know, sort of three messages and a warning from Small Beer quite, quite easily. And now if they happen to read Clark's World, they're going to see Chinese SF all the time. I think so, it's great. Uh, and that means if, and if when they become writers, hopefully, mm -hmm. that influences them. And also, you would imagine, I'm guessing, that many writers out there will check out what these non-English speaking writers are doing just to see the difference in worldview, to see, to see what they can soak up and reuse, because that's what writers do, you know? Absolutely. And I think the number of things, there were, if I'm not mistaken, in your year's best, there were 
I think three or possibly four stories that were set in Thailand, mm. uh, two or three of them by, by Thai writers. Uh, and that struck me as being a very useful thing for you to be doing. Uh, to the extent that, that short stories can drive the dialogue, yeah. uh, I think that's something that needs to be encouraged, has always needed to be encouraged. Um, it still leaves the problem with the novels. It still leaves us with the problem that of, the, of the writers who are, I, I think people are beginning to respond to uh, writers like Johannes Senesalo, for example, uh, who said like three or four yeah. uh, books in English, uh, award-winning. Um, and, um, I'm, and, and, and I think if you go back and look at some mainstream writers, it's not impossible for this to happen. I mean, arguably, one writer who has influenced a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers over the last... 50 years, as much as anyone else, is Garcia Marquez. Sure. His notion, of, his definition of magic realism has liberated writers literally all over the world. But not his definition, but the definition that was applied to 100 Years of Solitude. That's the kind of thing I would like to see. I would like to see the science fictional 100 Years of Solitude that would come out of a non-Anglo culture and just absolutely redefine how everybody writes that kind of fiction from then on. Well, certainly... That's always going to be a bit more difficult because of the translation cost. You're right. I will never forget having a conversation with a French publisher about the cost of translation. And we were talking about, I'm fairly sure it was Anathem by Neil Stevenson. Yes. I had the same conversation with the same publisher, so you're correct. Yeah. And the fact that they could not afford to translate it. They literally couldn't afford to do it. Because it was going to cost so much to have a translator sit down and translate it. They were going to pay them far more than they would pay Stevenson for the mm -hmm. rights to the book because of that impost. And they ended up never doing it, to my knowledge. Mm. Um, and his stuff sells very, very well. Um, so, on the other hand, I mean, Tor have a, and I should know this because I've, in fact, I'll dig it up while we're talking. Uh, so, forgive me for clicking. Uh, there's, a new there's a Chinese science fiction trilogy coming out from Tor that uh, Ken Liu has been involved with uh, translating. That could be excellent. And that's coming out early next year, I believe. And, you know, like last year, we had Wolfgang Jeschke's novel come out, The Curinous Game. And that got seen by more readers and was, you know, a cl hailed as being a particularly fine novel. So hopefully... Well, Tor Torres tried to do this occasionally. They tried to do Andreas Eschbach about 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, the Carpet Makers, which was an excellent novel and didn't have much impact. Uh, I don't think the anathem thing, I don't think the, the, the problem is really this. The problem is that uh, we Americans for sure, uh, Brits probably, and Australians, I don't know, don't read other languages. Uh, I've been told by friends in Scandinavia and in Germany and in France that it's nice to get uh, American or English or, or Australian novels translated, but so many people are going to buy them in the English edition anyway that that in turn cuts into the translation market. Of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody in Norway buys English language science fiction books when they come out, and they don't have to wait for the translation. Um, in the case of anything written in another language, we have to wait for the translation. We do, we do. Very, very few people read Chinese or Norwegian or Spanish or Portuguese or Italian. The book in question <laughs> is on its way to you now, Gary. It's called uh, The Three-Body Problem by Sixin Lu. Mm. It's coming out from Tor in November. Yes, I have heard about that. So that's that's something to look wonderful. for. It does sound very interesting. So, ah, <sighs> busy times. So t tell me, Gary, 
given that you have consumed films and we've talked about films and wandered into translation, which I think is an interesting subject, mm-hmm. have you consumed anything else this week? Um, other than food, I mean. Well, other than food and 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 my Pinot Noir, which I'm consuming as we speak, um, and no, well, no, actually, not a lot. I mean, I've I've, I've been reading um, what should be a very interesting, and I suspect a somewhat controversial new novel from Lavi Tidhar called um, A Man Lies Dreaming, mm-hmm. uh, which is I I don't even know whether it's coming out in the states right away or not. Um, so the, that was one of the things I'm looking at. I'm having a lot of fun with uh, an anthology that Kelly Link and Gavin Grant put together called Monstrous Affections, which is another one of these anthologies. And this is something I've been wanting to ask you about and, um, and other anthologists as well. Um, it's, it's clearly marketed as it's a Candlewick book, which means by definition it's a young adult book. Yep. Uh, and yep. There may be one or two stories in it to be young adult stories, but... Um, and, and there's an article also related to this um, in Publishers Weekly or the New York Times today about the new category of new adult fiction. Twenty <laughs> somethings, people that are not young adults. But um, my question is: is outside of the fact that you can sell a lot of books to a young adult market, does that make any difference in terms of the stories at all anymore? I don't know that it does. I mean, to some degree, I think it's almost like what you find is a young adult theme. And then you try and put stories in that aren't so that don't move into territory that young adults shouldn't wouldn't be allowed to read. That the, the publisher would reject as being young young adult, and that's almost the only thing that you um, that you um, look at. Have you started reading uh, the, the book Monstrous Affections? Yes. It starts off with I think one of the best Paolo Bacigalupi stories in ten years. And it's a pl- it's a complete fantasy it's not at all like other Paolo Bacigalupi stories I'll tell you why I think you're right and I'll tell you why I think it is such a good story because Paolo who hasn't written any short fiction for a few years has got mm-hmm. a couple of stories that, that this year including frankly for him a pretty unexciting story in John Joseph Joseph Adams the the end is nigh mm-hmm. which is classic um Paolo uh territory it's it's uh, pre-apocalyptic. It's talking about all kinds of environmental issues and all that kind of stuff, right? And I think mm-hmm. he's so tapped out in doing that at novel length, and he's so done it you know, brilliantly for a long time, that maybe there's not a lot for him to say there right now that sounds fresh. So the story in The End is Nigh is fine. Uh, Moriab's Children, which is quite, quite different as a, as a fantasy, is terrific. I mean, I think it's one of the year's best stories easily. It was, it was, well, that, that's one of the stories I've not read, uh, read maybe a third of the book. It was the first one I read, and, and the first thing I thought was, what makes what, what is young adult about this? No, nothing I mean, particularly, no. It's, it's nothing, nothing particular about it at all. Um, there are young, now, there, there are some stories later on that, that deal with high school-level yeah, sure. yeah. jealousies and that sort of thing, and I can understand, uh, and, and some of them, at least one of them is a little bit too cute yeah. for my taste. Uh, but most of the stories I've been looking at so far, and this is true of most of the stories I've been looking at mm. in anthologies that are labeled YA anthologies, is I find it very difficult to name, to, to identify factors outside of youthful protagonists uh, that make something a YA story. And when you say there are areas that, 
that are not considered okay. appropriate. Why I, I used to think that too until I started looking at Margot Lanigan's stuff. Well, I guess, but is, is it graphic material? I mean, is, is it the extent of how graphic you become is the issue? Mm, I don't know. You know, characters can take drugs, they can have sex, they can get murdered, but you're not going to be excessively detailed and graphic about it. Maybe that's the key. I mean, I'm still f feeling my way around. I've done a couple of YA anthologies, and maybe because of the kind of science fiction they were, it didn't come up too much. But I think it is something where we're still finding our feet. I mean, what I love about this book, though, um, and why I think it is one of the... It will be one of the anthologies of the year, mm -hmm. is that, first of all, it's got some I mean, it's just great stories. A couple of our, our best short story writers are in here. Right. Um, like Paolo. I mean, he's got, got one of the two or three new Kelly Link stories that are out in the world this year. And also, I think Holly Black is fan has, has developed into a spectacularly good short story writer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have heard 10 r rules for being an intergalactic smuggler, which is actually terrific. I really, really liked it. And it's really a science fiction story. It really oh. is. So, as a matter of fact, it's a space opera. It is indeed. It's a space opera which has something in common. We were talking earlier with with a tradition going back to the stars, my destination. And when we read people like Holly Black, and there are other writers, um, I'm trying to think of some of them. There are some very successful young adult writers whose treatment of science fiction has been really sophisticated in terms of they must understand something about yep. the background of the field. Yep. Um, and I've never talked to, I, 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 think I, I think I had a dinner with Holly Black once years ago and she wouldn't even remember this. Um, but I never have talked to any of these people about what they know about the field. But what we were saying earlier about science fiction being internalized, when you look at a story like Ten, Reels, Ten Rules for Being an Intergalactic Smuggler, um, you think she has to have been reading science fiction. Oh, yes, I'm you? sure. I'm sure, yes. Um, without a doubt. And the other anthology that's kind of interesting is uh, Stephanie Perkins has edited a, book, uh, edited a book called My True Love Gave to Me, which is a collection of 12 holiday stories. Uh -huh. And that also features you know, new work by you know, Kelly Link, uh, Holly Black, uh, David Levitan, uh, Ra uh, Rainbow Rouse, and much other people. And th the stories that I've read out of it, also terrific. You know, uh, It's interesting that the YA anthology seems to give these a broader range of themes a, br a bigger market. I mean, because right now, I mean, a lot of the anthologies you see are coming out at small press level. Yeah. You know, uh, so for example, Ian Whites's um, Newcon, pub Necon Publishing, I think it is, Newcon, Newcon Press, has put out what three or four anthologies this year. Some of which are quite interesting. You know, noir, femme fatales, um, mm. paradox, as well as having done Nina Allen's new novel. You know, so. There's a lot around, but the YA books seem to get a broader mass audience, which is a which I is interesting. I, I don't know if you've been told this by editors or by publicists or by um, publishers that that what, young adults don't shy away from short story collections the way adults tend to. I, I've not had that conversation with anybody really, uh, but it may well be that young adults are sufficiently attracted to the names they recognize. You know, mm. I look at younger readers I know, not the least, you know, Sophie, Miss 12. Um, and if she sees something by Rick Reardon, she wants to read it, whatever, wherever it is. And so, or if it's by um, somebody else whose work she happens to love. And that's not 
atypical with, with, with the adult audience, but I do think that short fiction has been uh, sidelined both by the, 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 the fact that it's, it's a more niche interest than novels, and also because publishers believe they sell less, and so that reinforces the fact that they sell less. Um, I don't know. You know, so and yet they, they do offer some people. I mean, my publisher Solaris do seem to do very well with anthologies, um, and you know some do do. I mean, look, this year uh, an anthology was you know to, getting towards the top of the New York Times bestseller list with that- um, with George and George Martin and Gardner Dozois' uh, Rogues, oh, I think it was or Rogues anthology. Yeah. Uh-huh. But then again, that, that, that's that's not a fair comparison because it's like oh sure, um, I know. Neil Gaiman. George Martin's name is on a book; it's going to be on the bestseller list. Pretty much, pretty much. I think that's pretty much true. You know, what's fascinating is whether it encourages me when we we look at writers, um, well, like Cassandra Clare, for example, or uh, Holly Black, uh, and people who've had some kind of success with. Um, with the young adult novel, I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged that they're writing short stories at all. I mean, I, I've not read any of the books I'm sure Sophie has in the Divergent trilogy by Veronica Roth. Mm. Uh, I've not met her. I've read interviews with her. She's local here in Chicago. And she apparently is fairly knowledgeable and widely read and, and wrote, started writing. Does she want to write short stories? No. Is she been even actress, short stories or even relevant? No. I don't think so. But then, see, okay, this may sound really weird. When I was Sophie's age and I read, mm. I never noticed if something was short stories or not, or anthologies. or I read books. I read stories, and they were as long as they were. I didn't think about them uh, at a external remove of, what about short fiction? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, when I read The Past Through Tomorrow, uh, the collection of um, Heinlein's Future History Stories, it was a Robert Heinlein book. It wasn't a collection of short stories particularly. I can see that, yeah. And so when Sophie read Divergent, and she raced through it when we were in Europe, she read the, read the trilogy, and then she picked up the short story collection that sits as a pendant to the, the short story uh, to, to the trilogy, and whipped through it without a second thought, huh. because it was the next Divergent book, and she didn't care. Much, I mean, at an adult level, I would be curious to see what the sales of The Martians, the pendant collection of short stories to Stan Robinson's Mars trilogy, was. I don't because it's the same kind of a thing. It wouldn't be on the same scale as uh, Red Mars, but no. I bet it was fairly consistent and stays in print. Well, I imagine, but those are those are story collections appended to novel sure series, yeah. which is a separate issue from a story collection at all. When story collections first began to appear, and um, uh, they first began to appear really uh, with the Arkham House in the late 40s and then with Doubleday in the early 50s, and one of the ideas behind the Martian Chronicles was that, for some reason, Walter Bradbury at Doubleday thought that people didn't want to read a collection of short stories from a pulp magazine. So, so he encouraged Ray Bradbury, no relation, mm-hmm. to write this bridge material. Mm-hmm. And then Bradbury's second collection, The Illustrated Man, was even more artificial and contrived bridge material yeah. uh, to try to make it look a little bit like a novel. So there was a sense, at least in the early part of the field, that people did not want to read story collections at all. Yeah. And that seems to have died out by the end of the 50s. I I guess so. Let me ask you something else as well. Um, Is it how they look? It's like, you know, like I've had the... I mean, Monstrous Affections is a great-looking book. 
Uh, and there are, there, are all, there are all kinds of terrific books, and I mean, I lately have been, I feel, blessed with terrific covers on from Solaris and all sort of thing. But I was looking at Hieroglyph, and setting aside the people involved, and setting aside their good intentions, does the book look like the last gasp of the old farts? It's a boring-looking book, if you want to know the truth. Um, I'm grabbing a copy of it right now because I just yeah I got it, and I don't know what it looks like a... I mean, I realize I it's, that, that's a, it's an like unkind that. way for me to put it, Gary. You know, last gasp of the old farts. But it feels like that a little bit, if you know what I mean. It feels like, partly because we've heard about it for so long, and the idea behind it has been so publicized by, by Neil Stevenson and others, that it feels like a book that's arrived a year after its time. Yeah. I mean, the, the stories and visions for a better future... If I were, if I had known nothing about this in advance, if I were not attracted by names like Cory Doctorow and Carl Schrader and Neil Stevenson and Bruce Sterling and Elizabeth Baer and so forth and so on and Jeffrey Landis, if I saw something subtitled "Stories and Visions for a Better Future," I would feel like, man, this is medicine. This is something that's good for me. And as a reader, since I was thirteen, I never wanted to read anything that I thought was going to be good for me. No, no, whoever did, and. Who did? You know, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, on Twitter, uh, Catherine Kramer, one of the editors of the book, has said they have other plans for other projects and other related things. And that's, that could be really exciting. But I, I just look, this seemed the packaging, the, con the concept is really a very last gasp of the old farts kind of a thing. And I, I just wonder how the world will react to it. And then I, I got another thing in the mail this week. And I'm setting aside, by the way, my other... Disappointment that several of the stories in uh, that book are reprints. I received mm -hmm. the latest MIT Technology Review SF Anthology, Twelve Tomorrows. Uh huh. Well, now, was, last year there was a volume of Twelve Tomorrows published by MIT. I'm just going to see if I've got a copy of it yeah. here. I think I do. So I'm just laying my hands on it because we're here in the office. And and you know, on one hand, you know, it featured material by. You know, Nancy Cress and Ian McDonald and Nancy Fulda and Kathy Goonan and Greg Egan and, and Peter Watts. Mm -hmm. And then it had a cover on it by, I mean, a lovely cover on it by Richard Powers, right? Quite a lovely uh -huh. looking thing. You can see it online if you go to 12tomorrows.com, I think it is. Oh, and now out comes a new one. And in amongst, I mean, it's supposed to be a cutting edge collection of science fiction, right? And in amongst stories by Warren Ellis and Cory Doctorow and Bill Gibson and Bruce Sterling, and I'll point out that these are mostly uh, well-established names and well-established white Anglo-Saxon male names, mm -hmm. though the collection does also include Lauren Bukas and Pat Cadigan. It's got a it's got a 1960s June cover on it. That is, that's Sean Hare's painting for Dune. And there is a, I mean, a very lovely uh, portfolio of John Shaw and her art in there. But I'm kind of sitting there going, what does it say about how we try to sell science fiction and the message we send that we're going to wrap up cutting-edge science fiction in a 1960s cover? Um, that's a good point. Uh, but my, my question to that is when you looked at the hieroglyph, which is a text cover with a... Yeah, it's just... Yeah. Admittedly, William Morrow is not great at doing packaging. They've, they've, they've messed up a number of novels by friends yeah. of mine. But it's at least it looks like science fiction. I mean, 
Um, when I did the Library of America thing, they deliberately chose Richard Powers or Richard Powers style covers because they wanted to convey the idea of the 1950s. And that seems right. That's honest advertising. You know, that's like that is 50s science fiction with 50s science fiction art. Exactly. Now you're talking about something that looks like a pyramid collection from 1961 with the same typography on the cover and the same Richard Powers thing. I don't know what the idea is. I think more important than the cover design, though, is the question of what the question we asked at our 200th podcast, which Robert Silverberg very correctly, very correctly and properly chided me for what science fiction is for. The idea, and he said, it's not for anything. And Joe said, it's not for anything. And they all said, no. But now we have a series of anthologies, MIT doing some and the Hieroglyph Project doing one, which says science fiction must do this. Science fiction has an assignment. Science fiction has been given a charge and we are going to do that. No, whether, whether science fiction wants to or not, we're going to make science fiction think of big new things. Now, isn't that exactly the same utilitarian fallacy that Bob Silverberg very correctly called me on when I asked that question there are 200. Okay, it is, though when that utilitarian fallacy was was laid on the table during the podcast, it was referring to all science fiction, not some science fiction. Well, yes. And it's a maybe not a useful uh, quibble, but following on from you know Stevenson's call to arms, you know, Finn and Kramer, the editors of Hieroglyph, have got people, and they've given them a mission. Um, Bruce Sterling's been brought in to guest edit 12 Tomorrows. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's got a, got some interesting stuff. There's a very good interview with Gene Wolfe in, in here, as well as you know, the, the, the Bill Gibson piece is actually a excerpt from the new novel. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it comes with the same mission statement that Hieroglyph has. You know, this is supposed to be to reflect you know, um, cutting-edge science fiction today without giving it a, a purpose, you know. Whereas, you know, Hieroglyph very much is, it's, it's a mission, it's, it's, it, it has a mission. It's out there to proselytize, to, you know, what is it, give, science, give scientists <laughs> something to be inspired by or whatever else, right? Well, and my, my guess is the most successful stories in it will prove to be the ones that kick against that the most, I mean, I, there's a certain irony in um, the fact that science fiction has spent most of a century now escaping the Gernsbachian fantasy that this is scientific education intermingled with a charming romance, to use his mm-hmm. exact phrase. Uh, we finally got away from that. We finally are beginning to look at science fiction as, as fiction, yeah. as fiction that may involve uh, almost anything that fiction involves plus the things that science fiction can do uniquely. We finally are getting to the point where science fiction is regarded as fiction and not as a an arm of technocracy, an arm of scientific education, as not, not as not as a functional thing. And and now we're finding people saying, well no, you should go back and do what you were doing in nineteen twenty six. And yes. I don't yes. believe for a minute that any of the authors in Hieroglyph did that. I have absolute confidence in the contributors not having read any of the book at all that they're going to write good fiction and they're going to write good fiction with ideas behind it but they're not going to write fiction in service of an agenda i don't think that i've I've read the the first three or four stories in the book so far Mm -hmm. and i have to say i mean it opens with neil stevenson's atmosphere incognito which really is exactly what you think it is 
it, uh, sorry, is exactly what you described. It is ser- fiction in the service of the idea, and it perhaps plods a bit as a result. Uh, when you get to Kathy Goonan's Girl in a Wave, Wave and a Girl, that's not the kind of writer she is, and she moves away from it and does something really interesting. Same for Madeline Ashby with By the Time We Get to Arizona. I'm yet uh-huh. to read the rest of the, finish reading the rest of the book. Um, so you're right. To some degree, the authors aren't willing to be utterly complicit to such a, a plodding agenda. Mm. But it does wrap the book. I mean, I look at it as a as a concept. And I just think I'm not sure that it's a particularly exciting one. And it does look a bit sort of old-fashioned and out-of-date and... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I, 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 I don't want to say too much about it without reading more of it, but I, what, what, what disturbs me about the idea, about the project in general, uh, and I remember, I, I, I think at some point I was involved with this because I did talk to Neil about it, and I, I said the same thing to him. I don't know if you do this with mainstream literature. I think if you said, okay, there is a serious problem of, let's say, income inequality, um, around the world, but let's say in the United States, where there, there, there's an enormous problem with concentration of wealth and with poverty and uh, all this sort of thing. Let's get a number of literary writers to write stories about this issue and make some kind of a, 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 a thrust toward forcing economists and politicians and, and policymakers to do something, to come up with a solution. I don't think that any serious writer would sit still for that kind of an agenda at all yeah you may be right but i guess my counter to that would be we can't sit around and talk about the way science fiction uniquely uses it tools and uh styles and approaches and i'm thinking about things like stan robinson's passionate Mm -hmm. discussion of things like um info dump or exposition in text being a particular way they do it, we do it in science fiction, and then not allow that we sometimes approach science fiction as a form differently. And one of the ways you approach science fiction as a form differently from a mainstream story is this problem-solving, question-answering kind of approach. That's true of some science fiction writers. I think that somebody like Stan Robinson, he writes um, the Science in the Capital trilogy, which is, I gather, going to be the Science in the Capital novel now. Yeah. Uh, he has he has a very specific agenda. He really wants to make specific points. When uh, Paolo Bacigalupi he writes the Doubt Factory, he has a very specific rhetorical point. That's always been a function of fiction. You could always write prison reform. The Victorian era was full of prison reform novels and economic reform novels and education reform novels. Dickens wrote Hard Times. That's always something that fiction can do. It's not what necessarily defines what a whole genre is supposed to do. True. True. If science fiction writers want to write ecological warning fables or policy warning fables, uh, of course they can do that. They can do that just like any other writer can do it. My objection is saying that an entire genre has a responsibility to do certain things. Well, I think that's true. But you see, what I'd counter to that, right, is an alternate objection. Stop assuming that when I say science fiction should do something that I mean all science fiction. Okay. You know, I... uh, I find myself saying this more and more, you know, there are things science fiction can do, but it doesn't have to be all science fiction, you know, uh, and it's not always a value judgment about the fiction that doesn't do it. You know, we, we've talked, again, endlessly about what is hard science fiction, what is not, and whether it's offensive for something to be called hard science fiction or not. It's not a value judgment when I say book X is not hard science fiction. 
it doesn't mean it's a lesser book. It's just not hard science fiction. You know, it's like looking at a flower and saying, it's a geranium, not a rose. You know, it's not worse or better or greater or lesser. It's just not. And so no, some science fiction is evangelical. Some science fiction is engaged with answering questions about the future. And we could ask an interesting question that we probably wouldn't get to answer about whether what it says about the health of science fiction overall, if it loses its evangelical streak, right? Because I think mm -hmm. that, that, that evangelical mission is an essential part or component of science fiction as a whole, even if it's irrelevant to many fine pieces of science fiction. The evangelical streak, meaning actual advocating policy changes, policy decisions, bringing attention to... I, I guess the way I would... Okay, it, it's a very poor way of putting it, and I'd have to think it through more rather than answering, you know, having a discussion on the fly. But what I'm referring to isn't so much uh, advocating policy change fiction, but what John Clute referred to as science you know, fiction that's connected to the world... Uh, uh -huh. and that actually attempts to engage with serious issues and matters that we're aware of today by casting stories into the future as ways of discussing those issues. That, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, that's, that, that can get fairly abstract. That, yeah. can get, that can get to the point where you can take a good space opera, you can take, let's mm -hmm. say, an Reynolds novel, which has no connection, no, no apparent connection to any current ideological or policymaking issues, but nevertheless uh, has a lot to do with questions of rational problem solving, of, uh, of, of heroic action, and so forth and so on. And, and in other words, the space opera is, is, is a classic example of the part, part of science fiction, that huge dimension of science fiction, which has been alive and well and kicking for nearly a century now, uh, and is basically doing what adventure fiction does well, but it's not doing anything other than making the argument that, you know, reason and competence are good things, which is not yeah. much of an argument, really, um, is, is, is completely different from the kind of fiction that um, you'd get with the most, the, 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 the ecological disaster uh, genre, subgenre of science fiction. There's a, there was an article in the New York Times this morning about the number of eco, the number of dystopian mainstream novels coming out this fall. And almost every one of the scenarios is something you could have found in science fiction 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. There's always been that subset of awful warning science fiction. There's a huge number of nuclear war stories that are now superannuated, really. I mean, the, the idea of, 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 of fallout shelters and uh, mutants resulting from radiation poisoning and so forth, those are archaic ideas. The stories still work. The stories can still be very effective. A Canticle for Leibowitz still works as a novel, even though as an awful warning against, against nuclear war, yeah. it's pretty badly dated. Um, That's true. I will say, to me, the key in this is should. Hmm, okay. things, things that include should don't work to, anymore. The reason that I think the hieroglyph project doesn't won't work is because of the should element. This is what it should do not what it may do. Mm. This is what you should pay attention to. This, And I think in the 21st century, everybody backs up against that. I think that's part of what uh, Silverberg was kicking against with when he talked about the logical fallacy of science fiction having a purpose or a function other than to entertain. 
Now, I think it may have, but it shouldn't doesn't have to have. So individual works do have, but you know. Oh, okay, let's let's make a distinction here. Authors can have a purpose and a function and an intent. It's it's a big stretch to go from an author's individual intent to saying what a genre as yes. a whole should, yeah. or should not do. Exactly. We've talked about Paolo Bacigalupi. I mentioned this last week, I think, on the podcast that you know he can he can take a zombie baseball novel and turn it into an expose of the meatpacking industry. Yes. He's passionate about that sort of thing. Sherry Tepper wrote a series of novels over a period of 20 years uh, that were passionate about what she, what, what now we call ecofeminism. And yes. she had very clear agendas in those novels, sometimes perhaps too clear, but it was her, what her intent was. And I actually talked to her about this and she said, no matter what she tried to write, she came out saying the same things because she felt so strongly about sure, it. Sure, sure. That's absolutely valid for any writer to do that sort of thing. If someone wants to write Upson Sinclair's The Jungle, or Paolo Bacigalupi's The Doubt Factory, or Sherry Tepper's uh, uh, Six Moon Dance. They should do that, but they should not necessarily expect other writers to do the same thing. I just want to say as a quick sort of sidebar to this, because we're just about, believe it or not, at the end of our podcast. And sooner or later, I'm going to go out with um, my family and celebrate Father's Day. Ah. But Tepper does have a new book due out in the next couple of months. Really? Yes, she does. She has kept writing through the years. And this one, and I'm just trying to find the title of it, but I don't have it to hand, uh, appears to be one of those late career novels that comes along that attempts to join everything together. Hmm. So you find characters from the days of Maeve and the Many Shaped joining up with you know, characters from the more recent novels. From her early fantasy novels? Yeah. She's joining, science. putting it all together. Wow. Some mad Philip K. Dickey, oh, sorry, in fact, Philip Jose Farmery and Dick, <coughs> you know. And I think we should look at it, Gary. I think we should look at uh, it. Sherry Tepper is somebody we've not talked about a lot on the podcast. Something, Sherry Tepper is somebody you don't hear a lot about anymore. Uh, and yet she had a powerful series of novels, and some of the early novels were among the most influential of the time. She was, you know, for a time, the leading feminist science fiction writer. Yes. Uh, well, her book, Fish Tales, is what it's called, which is, frankly, between you and I, not the most attractive title, title for a book. It's her 35th novel. Wow. At age, what, 83 or 84. And yes, characters like Maven Many Shape, Ginny and Star Eye all show up in this book. So I think we need to get a hold of this, Gary, from our friends at HarperCollins and, and look at it. Is it coming out in the States or is it coming out? Of course it is, yes. Okay, excellent. Harper Voyager in the States in October. So oh, we'll this go look year? At that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's due out in 10 minutes. And th though we didn't touch on it, really I've done little of this, this last week in terms of co consuming media than watch enormous swales of Warehouse 13 for no good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, short fiction, submissions for my anthology, um, Meeting Infinity, and Nina Allen's book I've started to read, uh, The Race. So, uh -huh. But I think we got to the end of a podcast, Gary. I think we've, I think we, we've, I think we've done that. Yes, and we've, 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 we've raised some names. One of the things we do on the podcast, which I think, I hope people find useful, is remind them of writers who don't get talked much don't get talked about much anymore. And Sherry Tepper strikes me as a fascinating writer, and mm. I think there were there was a point at which her 
novels reached too strongly for their point of view. But what we were talking about with Hieroglyph, there have always been writers who have extremely strong points of view and keep returning to them again and again. And she was certainly one of them. She was one of the people who wanted to use science fiction to correct and address genuine problems that she saw around her. Well, maybe we'll try to talk to her. Who knows? Certainly, we've got some interesting plans for the podcast. And we're not really going to those too much right now because they're still just ideas, but lots of exciting things to get us through until our Christmas hiatus, our now traditional Christmas hiatus. And before our Christmas hiatus, we will be attempting to record some podcasts when we are both at the World Fantasy Convention in Arlington, Virginia in early November. It does appear as though that will happen. Yes, it does appear as though we both will be together when we didn't think we would. I'm going to be there when I really was sure I was not, it seems. And so if that plays out, then we might even post a time when we'll be in the bar and invite Crude Street listeners to come and say hello. I remember remember getting a number of tweets and, and, and emails from some of our loyal listeners who I did not get a chance to meet in Lancan. I regret that, and I hope that at some point mm. some of these loyal uh, followers will show up at maybe World Fantasy. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say is we might even, and we haven't talked about this, and I'm thinking it probably wouldn't happen, it wouldn't work out. We might even offer to do another live podcast, Gary. We could offer to do that, absolutely. Certainly, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's not really a World Fantasy kind of a thing, but mm-hmm. um, well, we'll see. We'll we'll make the offer because goodness knows the last one was fun. That it was, was certainly good. fun for us because we had. We had people way smarter than we are talking on it. That's the secret. And so with that, until next week, Gary. Until next week. I will talk to you then. Have a wonderful Australian Father's Day. Thank you very much. And we will be back together in a week. A week. Until then, we remain now as we always have been, desperately in need of a producer. Please email (laughs) myfirstname.lastname at gmail.com on the Coot Street Podcast.